millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and today we're going to look at the risk that the war in Ukraine turns nuclear. Whoever should try to stop us and further create threats for our country, for our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. So that was Russian President Vladimir Putin making a thinly veiled threat that Russia might use nuclear weapons against anyone coming to Ukraine's aid. He then put Russia's nuclear forces on what he called special alert, though it's not quite clear what that entailed. There's been these nuclear threats overshadowing the war since Russian troops rolled en masse across the Ukrainian border a month ago. With one announcement, Vladimir Putin left the world asking, would he? I'm ordering the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the General Staff to put the strategic nuclear forces on special alert. Further escalation of the war, whether by accident or design, threatens all of humanity. Raising the alert of Russian nuclear forces is a bone-chilling development. And that was UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres' warning of the potential implications of a nuclear war. But would the Kremlin really use nuclear weapons against its neighbour, with all the blowback for Russia that would entail? What might lead it to do that? How fearful should we be that the war could escalate into a nuclear confrontation? I'm pleased to welcome back on Olya Olika, who I think most of our listeners will now know is Crisis Groups Europe and Central Asia Director. Olya is an expert not only on Russian foreign policy and the Ukraine war, but also on Russia's nuclear doctrine. She's just published a piece in Foreign Affairs, it's called Putin's Nuclear Bluff, and it looks at the danger that he uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Olya, welcome back on. Thank you, it's uh, always a pleasure. So... Olya, why don't we start? Um, could you give a, a short synopsis of the piece you had recently in Foreign Affairs? Right. So the piece in Foreign Affairs uh, was meant to make some sense of some of the nuclear posturing we've seen from Russia as uh, this uh, full-blown war in Ukraine has began and then as it has continued, because we've seen statements, we've seen exercises, all of that ostensibly meant to remind us that Russia has nuclear weapons. Uh, so what does that mean and how scared should we be? And my bottom line coming out of it is that Russia does not want a nuclear war any more than anybody else does. But there are conditions under which uh, Russia is willing to have a nuclear war. And some of these could yet emerge. We're not in that world now, but we could be. So we'll have a chance to, to unpack a lot of that over the course of this conversation. But what I'd like to try and do is think through how things might escalate. And I guess that the, the sort of starting point for that is is to look at where uh, the fighting currently stands. I mean, obviously, as we talked about in previous episodes, the uh, Russian advance has encountered fiercer resistance than uh, 
Moscow expected. Uh, do you want to sort of run through kind of where things stand on the various fronts now? Right. So in the uh, last week or so, we've seen what looks like something of a stall out of the Russian forces that are coming in along a whole lot of axes at once, right? So they're surrounding Kiev. They're moving west and the south towards Odessa, uh, potentially linking up from the south uh, southern front to the front that's coming from um, Donbass, the front that's coming in from the north, kind of this question of whether they can bring it all together, uh, surround the Ukrainians and gain control of all of that territory. That's in essence forces that have come in from Crimea and sort of moved east along the Sea of Azov and forces that have come in from Donbass in separatist held areas and moved west and forces coming down from the from the north again, sort of across the east of the country. Right. So you've got forces from the north and the northeast, and you've got forces coming from the north towards Kiev, right? So you've got a lot of axes at once, which, you know, some analysts speculate as part of Russia's problem. They're trying to do too much all at once without too much, without uh, adequate coordination. Um, so it does look like it's stalled out somewhat. Uh, the Ukrainians have launched some successful counteroffensives around Kiev and around Mykolaiv in the south. But we're also seeing Russian reinforcements coming, and um, the Ukrainians may be holding some of their punches in their counteroffensives because they want to protect humanitarian evacuation corridors, and they're concerned that if they launch full-on attacks, they might compromise the capacity to get civilians out of uh, cities and towns where the Russians have continued to bombard. And obviously Mariupol at the moment, which is a city on the southern coast between Crimea and Donbass, it's getting pummeled at the moment, really a heavy air assault. But that's key to linking up Russian forces that have come up from Crimea to those that are that are in Donbass. Well, it's also just a key port. Um, so if Russia wants uh, to control the Black Sea, uh, right, if... Look, you can imagine all sorts of logics for the Russian military advance, and um, I, I, I do feel quite confident that Russia's initial intention was that it wanted all of Ukraine, not in the sense that it wanted to occupy and control it, but in the sense that it wanted Ukraine to voluntarily be controlled, right? That it wanted Ukraine to surrender and to become an obedient country. Um, but if it's not doing that, right, I think there is some strategic logic to the territory and the port of Mariupol is an important Black Sea port. One of the things that um, some analysts have pointed out is that the destruction is leaving a lot of the port facilities intact. Uh, so perhaps, you know, is that intentional? But we are seeing just tremendous devastation of the places where people live in Mariupol. Just horrible, horrible stories about the casualties, the deaths, the misery of people huddling terrified, lack of food, lack of water. I mean, it, mass graves, it's heart-wrenching to watch, and it does remind one of Aleppo, of Grozny, of other Russian offensives that um, at best were very acceptant of civilian casualties and at worst were intentionally targeting civilians. Um, it's always hard to prove uh, those specific war crimes, right? It's hard to prove that uh, nation-state military was intentionally targeting civilians. Um, but you see this devastation and you've got to figure that the Russian armed forces are at the least aware that that's what they're causing. And as you know, we've talked about before, the Ukrainians have run a very effective uh, information sort of campaign, particularly in Western capitals. Obviously, uh, President Zelensky's bravery as a wartime leader has been inspiring to many Western leaders. But the story they're telling, it's largely true. They do seem to be dealing enormous uh, damages to Russian forces, certainly much more than Moscow expected. Yes, look, um, the Ukrainians are being very careful with their information, but we live in the world of satellite imagery and we can see who's moving where. Um, we get reports from the ground, though no longer from Mariupol. Um, the press has evacuated and there's very little connectivity to the city at this point. Uh, so we do know what's going on, and we can confirm things like Ukrainian counteroffensives, and um, we also get Western intelligence assessments of uh, 
the destruction of Russian aircraft, Russian tanks, uh, how many Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded. So yes, the Ukrainians are are much more effective than anyone expected them to be, and the Russians are much less effective than anyone expected them to be. And you put those two things together, and this war looks nothing like anyone expected it to look. And I think yesterday uh, there was a leak, it seemed, from this uh, pro-Kremlin newspaper in Russia, Komsomolskaya Pravda, which suggested very high Russian uh, fatalities and casualties. I mean, do, do we have a sense of the numbers at all of, of Russians that have been injured or killed? So the U.S. Uh, estimated, I think last week, about 7,000 killed, 14,000 uh, wounded amongst the Russians. And that's of a fighting force, what, estimates something in the region of 200,000? Yeah, you're looking at a 10% uh, casualty rate, uh, putting the wounded and killed together. Um, that's a lot. It is reflective of the kind of fighting you're seeing, right, with tank columns and um, artillery units getting taken out and, um, and urban fighting and so forth and so on. But it's also still very high, even by those standards. One of the things that has kept death rates among U.S. military forces comparatively low in recent wars is the improvements in battlefield medicine. Uh, so, you know, you'll see a lot of arguments made that war has become less lethal, to the military at least, based on these U.S. experiences in war, but a lot of it is people simply surviving what they would not have survived before. Now, I think the access to battlefield medicine for Russian troops, and probably also for Ukrainian troops, just isn't that. It's not what the United States was able to do, helicoptering people out uh, of Iraq, of Afghanistan. And I'd also point out that if you look at the losses for the Afghans or the Iraqis, they don't look like the losses for the Americans. Uh, But having said all of that, this is still a really, really high fatality rate in a very, very short period of time. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that we don't actually know the civilian death toll. Um, I remember when the war in Iraq started and there were questions about the civilian death toll uh, you know, in, in, um, in 2003. I remember you know, conversations about the civilian death toll and one of my then colleagues saying, I don't understand, can't they just go to the morgue and count the bodies? And here's the thing, right? In Mariupol, you can't go to the morgue and count the bodies. The bodies are in mass graves. The bodies are being buried by family members in the garden. We may never know how many people have died. And so the Russian offensive, the Russians are still on some fronts advancing, um, but it's really bogged down. Uh, It's not clear how they're going to be able to take Kiev uh, or if they're going to meet the same sort of destruction on Kiev as they have on um, on Mariupol. But so far, there's no suggestion that President Putin, Kremlin, has sort of recalibrated what they want from the war, uh, signs that they might sort of look for some sort of compromise. As yet, there isn't an awful lot of that. So, you know, what the Russians can do is more bombardments, um, and they can put in more forces, and we'll see just what they can do with more forces, where they're coming from, how capable they are. We're unfortunately also going to see what they can do with more missiles, more artillery, and possibly more aircraft strikes. This is only partly a war to take territory. It is mostly a war from both sides to try to force the other to recognize the foolishness of continuing. Uh, So the Russians are trying to force the Ukrainians to say this isn't worth it, and the Ukrainians are trying to force the Russians to say this isn't worth it. Um, And it could still get very ugly as they try to do that. At some point, they run out of reinforcements, they run out of troops, um, they may even run out of ammunition, uh, though Western countries are supplying Ukrainians. Russia is only supplying itself, Um, but it has an awful lot. But at some point, they run out. But if you look at the messaging coming from Russia, um, one thing that's happened is we've seen them shift from this is just a war in Donbass in the east to at least tacit acknowledgement this is a war across all of Ukraine. Um, But we haven't seen any recognition of just how badly it's going. So yeah, you had this splash in Komsomolskaya Pravda, which might have been a hack, uh, might have been something else, which suggested, I think, 10K killed. But 
that's a reflection of the fact that there is opposition to this war throughout Russia. It's not a reflection of the Russian government changing course. So that's where things stand now. Let's come back then, Olya, to the nuclear question. So from the beginning, the war's sort of been overshadowed by this nuclear menacing that we heard about up top. President Putin early on made an implicit threat that any country coming to Ukraine's aid could face a nuclear response from Moscow. He's done other things that suggest he's sort of cranking up readiness to use nuclear weapons. He and other Russian officials have also accused Ukraine of planning to use biological chemical weapons. They've referred to Ukraine's, as far as I know, non-existent nuclear weapons program, sort of raising fears that he's laying the ground for Russia's own use of those weapons. Could you talk a little bit through this sort of nuclear nuclear bullying or these nuclear threats? Well, as you said, there's basically two categories of threats. There are the threats that are about NATO and Western countries getting involved. And that's, you know, from the morning that Putin announced his special operation, he said that any outside country standing in Russia's way would face, quote, consequences such as they've never seen in their history, unquote, which, you know, I don't know, um, I interpret that as a nuclear threat. Uh, and then as Russian forces began to meet stiff resistance, he announced that Russia's deterrence forces, which are both nuclear and conventional forces, were shifting to what he called a special regime of combat duty. Now, nobody knew what that meant. And then, you know, we were told that they had shifted because they'd staffed up some command centers. So it turned out to mean nothing. But this kind of messaging is intended to remind Western states that a war with Russia could be nuclear. Then you've got the threats about Ukraine, where you've had false accusations coming from Russian officials, including Putin himself, that Ukraine was building nuclear weapons. Ukraine is not building nuclear weapons and was not building nuclear weapons. You've got the seizure of um, civilian nuclear facilities, power plants, and so forth, with claims that Ukraine is going to try to build dirty bombs. Again, there's absolutely nothing remotely resembling evidence that Ukraine was doing anything like this. Talk of U.S.-supported bioweapons facilities, also completely false. Uh, and the question there is, is Russia laying the groundwork to justify a nuclear chemical biological strike of its own? I mean, chemical or biological, it's against conventions that Russia has signed, Uh but is, is Russia trying to justify a strike of its own, or is it trying to create a false flag where it might use chemical or bioweapons and try to blame it on Ukraine? So these are all things that everybody kind of watches and is nervous about. I mean, despite the, all the threats, uh, Russia does have a nuclear policy. Right? I mean, it has a nuclear policy that it states in official Russian documents. So what policy dictates in principle when it would resort to a nuclear weapon? So since 2010, the stated Russian nuclear doctrine has been that Russia allows for, uh, doesn't require, but allow for nuclear weapons use in a response to the use of weapons of mass destruction by an adversary or a threat to the very existence of the state, uh, the state being either Russia or one of its allies, um, you know, allies, however you want to define it at this point, probably Belarus. Uh, in June of 2020, they clarified that a bit more, um, kind of listing some specifics of what the very existence of the state means to them. Um, so those included credible information that Russia's under ballistic missile attack, uh, the use of nuclear other WMD by an adversary against Russian territory or that of its allies, adversary actions against Russian critical government or military infrastructure that could undermine its capacity for nuclear retaliation. So say a cyber attack on Russia's command and control, or perhaps an attack on Russian leadership would qualify for something like that. And then conventional aggression against Russia that threatens the very existence of the state. So that's kind of the formal language. So sorry, just to sum that up. So it's... Um nuclear, chemical, biological, weapons of mass destruction attack on Russia or its allies, conventional aggression that threatens the very existence of the state, ballistic missile attack or good intelligence of ballistic missile attack, or a risk to its own, Russia's own nuclear command and control capabilities. That could be through, as you say, could be through a cyber attack. Exactly. So basically, the way I would summarize it is it's a threat to the very existence of the state, or a threat to the very existence of the state's capacity to retaliate with nuclear weapons and also WMDs. And there's no danger now that President Putin, I mean, as we know, like 
some other leaders around the world associates very much the Russian state now with himself. So is there some flexibility in the doctrine sort of based on that sort of interpretation? Look, I don't know of a state that does not associate forced regime change with the very existence of the state. Uh, I don't know of a country that does not see an attack on its leadership that's meant to change its leadership through violence as anything other than existential. So I actually think it's a bit misleading to say, oh, my God, he thinks the state is himself. Uh, you know, I think if you said that we were going to attack France and replace the leadership, the French government would also see that as an existential threat. Though you could perhaps envisage a scenario where his grip on power was threatened by mass anti-war, anti-government protests. I mean, it doesn't look very likely at the moment, but you could envisage a scenario like that. And he then says that those protests are being stoked up by foreign powers. Absolutely. No, and I think that's uh, that's very much the reality uh, with which we have to reckon. And there's this sort of sense in the US. I mean, you hear it. It was just watching the other day a panel of luminaries on uh, on Russian foreign policy. And all of them, I think, stated that Russian policy uh, entailed something like escalate to de-escalate or escalate to win, which is this sort of idea that if Russia was losing a war, it would be prepared to use some form of nuclear weapon to stop it losing the war. But you think that that is not, there's nothing in Russian nuclear policy that actually says that? So here's how... I tend to unpack this escalate to de-escalate debate. First, I find the language really annoying because most escalation is intended to de-escalate. That is why you escalate. You escalate to get your adversary to back down. Uh, escalate to win means the same thing. Your adversary backs down and wins. So the actual scenario that people posit when they say that Russia has a so-called escalate to de-escalate doctrine is that Russia would launch a war of choice, probably in a Baltic country, uh, and then in order to prevent NATO members from coming to the aid of their ally, they would use a nuclear weapon to demonstrate just how serious they are, and then everybody would back away. So the logic is that the Russians just want to win and they're willing to do anything to win in order to accomplish whatever military goal they set themselves. And here's the thing. I do think that the stated Russian doctrine does not fully account for the large number of non-strategic nuclear weapons that Russia has. They don't neatly fit into the way Russia lays out its conditions for use. So what is going on. And one of the ways that I read and understand this is that any war with NATO is existential for Russia. This is why I don't think Russia is planning to attack any Baltic countries. So why is any war with NATO existential for Russia? Because NATO member states put together are conventionally far more capable than Russia. Russia would lose that war. If Russia is losing that war, um, how does that war go? It probably involves some effort to take out Russian capacity to use nuclear weapons. So it probably involves strikes on its conventional commands. It probably involves strikes on its nuclear command and control. It probably involves strikes on the Russian homeland. It does all of these things that fit in this Russian list of reasons why it might use nuclear weapons. Um, if you want to do something short of that, yes, you might use a nuclear weapon to demonstrate how serious you are. But saying that it's escalating to win when it's actually escalating to survive, I think it's a misunderstanding of the way the Russians see the war. So and when you look at how Russians model this, it doesn't happen in a Baltic country. It happens in Belarus or Ukraine. That's where the war starts. So Russia it does see itself as fighting for its survival and potentially using a nuclear weapon when it thinks its survival is at risk. And, and why do you think this idea of, uh, as, you know, and I know you don't like the expression, but escalate to de-escalate, how do you think this understanding of Russian nuclear policy has become so prevalent in Washington? So I think some of it comes from just this effort to understand why they have these capabilities that um, don't fit into a purely deterrent, uh, purely defensive nuclear doctrine. I think part of it is from people thinking, okay, if I had those weapons, what would I be using them for? How would I be planning to use them? 
Um, and it also comes from the fact that both in Russia and in the United States, you have plenty of people who write about and have been writing since the 1950s about managing nuclear escalation and how you would manage nuclear escalation in a war. Uh, what kind of weapon would convince your, their advers the adversary to back down in the case of a nuclear war? And you can find these debates in the Russian literature just as you can find them in the American literature. So people point to that and say that's what they're planning to do. That's how it that's how it works. I mean, in essence, what you're saying is that assuming that NATO don't get involved directly in Ukraine's war, you think that there's nothing in Russia's nuclear doctrine that would suggest or would allow President Putin, Moscow, to use, you know, what they what would be called like a tactical nuclear weapon. And we can come to what that actually means you know, on the battlefield if it looks like it's not getting its way in Ukraine. You don't think that that's a likely scenario, assuming that NATO does not get more involved than it is. Well, and assuming that Russia follows its doctrine, right? Because the thing about doctrine is that it's very nice and it's written down. But in the event, countries do what countries do, and it may not align with doctrine. And I do think that there are conditions under which the Russian government might think that losing a conventional war with Ukraine puts the very existence of the state as they see it at risk. How nuclear weapons use helps with that, you know, from a military standpoint, it doesn't. It's meaningless. It's useless. But, you know, if you look at the shock and awe aspect of the campaign in Ukraine overall, you can't completely exclude the possibility that somebody will think, okay, the way we really demonstrate to them that they need to back down is we explode a nuclear weapon. It would be a really dumb move. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, but invading Ukraine along multiple axes uh, was also a really dumb move. And do you want to talk a little bit about what are often called sort of tactical nuclear weapons? So, I mean, you're still talking about uh, weapons that sometimes have something like the power of the, the weapons that the U.S. dropped on uh, on Japan. Yeah, I mean, there's the yield question, but there's also the distance question. Uh, the strategic nuclear weapons, uh, we usually use the term to refer to the weapons that fly from Russia to the United States or from the United States to Russia. They go a long distance. Uh, so non-strategic nuclear weapons, also called tactical nuclear weapons, usually refers to shorter and intermediate range systems that don't fly as far and make a slightly smaller boom. Um, it's still a really, really, really big boom. And just, I mean, just to give a sense, you have some that are Hiroshima sort of size, but then you have some that are a fraction of that, right? Or, or You really don't, no. I mean, nobody has nuclear artillery anymore. Uh, if there are nuclear mines around, we don't know about them. So in essence, you know, a tactical nuclear weapon is only tactical in the sense that Hiroshima, Nagasaki were tactical. So hardly reassuring to call it tactical. Yes, no, it should not make you feel good or think that this is something that you can use to strike an armored column and have very little effect on anything else. It's going to have a huge effect. And depending on which way the wind is blowing, um, it's going to have a huge effect on one or more countries uh, in the vicinity. Including potentially Russia. Including very likely Russia, uh, you know, so and and Belarus. Uh, so you know, kind of the logic of using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine if you're Russia is it's a pretty suicidal logic. And just, I mean, before we come on to NATO's involvement, just this week, the U.S. President Biden has been talking about, you know, I think anyone who's been around for the last twenty years will be skeptical about U.S. intelligence, but generally, Western intelligence has been pretty good on the Ukraine war. And now, according to Western intelligence that President Biden himself is citing, you know, he thinks there's strong indications of the Russians potentially using chemical weapons. I mean, what do you make of that? So we've seen Syrian use of chemical weapons used by the Syrian government, uh, which they deny, and Russia, which backs them, denies. But it uh, certainly looks like chemical weapons use uh, and thus a violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. We have also seen um, Novichok attacks that sure look like they're coming from the Russian government on individuals, on political opponents, uh, both within Russia itself and in the United Kingdom. 
so that raises this question of if they're willing to condone it in Syria, if they're willing to use agents uh, in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention against individuals, then maybe they would do it. And I think particularly uh, it's plausible if they can claim that it's the Ukrainians that are doing it, right? Uh, and then have plausible deniability create a bit of a fog over the information. It sort of also raises questions about how much Moscow fears the reputational costs of doing that. And obviously part of that is sowing confusion about what's actually happened. But part of it also relates to the information war that we talked about, that as you say, the Ukrainians are winning, but they're winning it largely in Western capitals. The news reporting, public opinion, elite opinion in many other parts of the world is is quite different. It's generally more sceptical that this is a story only of Russian aggression. I mean, I think in this case, the scepticism is, is wrong, but it's a reality. Yeah, I think the Ukrainian information campaign has targeted Western audiences for a number of reasons. One is because that's who they want help from. Another, it's because that's where they have the connections and the language skills and the capacity. And it's harder to reach other audiences in part because, you know, if you're in the Middle East, you say, okay, fine, you're having a war in Europe, huh? We've got, can we talk to you about all the wars we've been having all of this time? If you're in Africa, you're, you know, you're looking at this and you're like, what about Ethiopia? I'm sorry, why, why am I supposed to pay so much attention to this? Is it because it's white people dying? And they aren't going to be as, as open to this narrative, which in some ways plays on this, oh my God, a war in Europe, how can there be a war in Europe? It's not going to have the same resonance in the Middle East and in Africa. I think there is a certain frustration about the attention it gets. And I also think that um, there are places where people have learned to distrust Western information sources uh, because they've been wrong before, because they see them as carriers of American propaganda. Yeah, and maybe there's this balance between recognizing or sympathizing with the plight of a smaller country that's being bullied by its larger neighbor uh, in what's you know, clearly the worst violation of sovereignty since you know, at least the Iraq war. But that's tempered, as you say, with sort of cynicism, skepticism in much of the world about the West's role, about how reliable Western narratives or Western sources of information are. And I think in this case, that scepticism, again, is misguided, but it is, again, a, a reality. Many countries across the global south simply don't want to get caught up in what they see as a dispute between the West and Russia, even if it's Ukraine that's bearing the brunt of that. And they don't, they don't want to pick a fight against Russia. Um, though, of course, we've seen the UN votes that there is a global recognition that Russia is the aggressor. Yeah, you had the UN vote. Uh, so a large number of states in the General Assembly voted to condemn Russia's invasion. But I think we should be clear, a big part of that was due to Western diplomatic arm twisting uh, behind the scenes before the vote. And in reality, that strong condemnation in the General Assembly hasn't really amounted to much more than signalling. I mean, first of all, it's a General Assembly vote, so it's not binding. Obviously, it doesn't lead to anything. But it also hasn't amounted to much in terms of condemnation in non-Western capitals after the vote. There isn't this strong sense of outrage at what Russia is doing. And I think that should be some cause for reflection and, and concern in Western capitals. But Olya, if we can then sort of come back to Western policy, particularly as it relates to escalation risks, and if we think especially what of the of the, the weapons that are being supplied to Ukraine, the troop buildups in NATO countries in Eastern Europe, the sanctions the attempts to isolate Russia, where for the West do the main pitfalls lie in terms of raising the risks of an escalation into a sort of direct confrontation between NATO and Russia? So I think anything that looks like direct conflict between NATO member states or NATO as an alliance and Russia increases the risks multifold. The Russians have made it very clear that that's where they see the risk. Uh, and again, as I said, it's very difficult to imagine a war between Russia and NATO that Russia does not see as potentially existential. At that point, it's in line with both doctrine and potentially the instinct of the leadership in the Kremlin to uh, take extreme measures, which could include the use of a nuclear weapon. Um, short of that, I think there are other things that could 
risk a Western response, which then risks the Russian response and so forth, right? So simply as the war drags on, if we do see more bombing, if we do see more horrific uh, civilian suffering, there will be more pressure in Western states to respond and to be more active. Uh, if Russia does use a chemical or a biological weapon, there will be a tremendous amount of desire to respond somehow to that. And there aren't a lot of options other than some kind of direct uh, NATO member state involvement. Um, so, you know, th these are the things that I'm concerned with. And so if we come to them through these different sort of Western options, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the no-fly zone before, uh, you know, and actually you and others have, have you know, Chrysler Group have, have written about why this would be tantamount to a declaration of war with Russia. Then another option that sort of people float is, a, is often they say it's a humanitarian no-fly zone or over parts of Western Ukraine, but presumably that pretty much amounts to the same as a no-fly zone over other parts of Ukraine. It would involve taking down Russian, potentially Russian air defenses, Russian aircraft, it would, it would in essence, again, be sort of tantamount to a declaration of war. I don't actually understand the point of a humanitarian no-fly zone over Western Ukraine, given that, you know, the major strike we saw in Western Ukraine the, on the um, training facility at Yavoriv uh, was carried out from Russian territory. Um, so how are you going to, how does this work? Um the humanitarian crisis is in Mariupol, where the Russians claim they're striking military targets. So, you know, the logic of the no-fly zone is that you're counting on the, Russia's own aversion to escalation and the risk of war with NATO to restrain them. That if you threaten the no-fly zone, they won't actually fly, and then you won't have to shoot them down. Uh, I'm not willing to take that risk personally. And so if you think measures short of that, um, the other thing that seemed to be on the cards a couple of weeks ago was the provision of uh, MiGs, of uh, fighter jets um, to, to, to Ukraine. And again, it seems that the Biden administration decided against that. How do you think that plays into the risk of escalation? So I think Western states are trying to thread the needle of avoiding anything that looks like direct involvement while supplying Ukraine with as much as they can possibly supply it with. And that means nothing that requires Western military trainers on the ground, nothing that requires Western military suppliers to cross into Ukraine. So it has to be stuff that the Ukrainians can pick up somewhere else and operate themselves. And then you get into these questions of are some things just so visible and so big that they amount to an escalation because they're just going to be perceived as such? You know, is an airplane just that big? Are specific uh, anti-missile defense systems does that cross a threshold in the kinds of technologies that you're providing and supplying? Now, most of that stuff would also require training of some sort. And either I mean, it's, you're flying Ukrainians out of Ukraine to train them on the thing, which is time consuming and difficult, or it's coming in with trainers who then might end up operating it. And then you do get into the Western military personnel operating a system that is shooting at Russian capabilities. So that's a line that NATO member states have decided they're not interested in crossing. And it seems, I mean, tell me if this is wrong, but it seems in any case the supply of anti-tank, uh, anti-aircraft weapons, the arms, the ammunition, the body armor, all, all that that's going across that so far is allowing the Ukrainians to check Russia's advance for, for, for the most part? Yeah, look, so make no mistake, it was Ukraine's resistance with the people it had and the equipment it had in the first place, combined with Russian ineptitude in just the first days of the war, that made it clear that this wasn't going to be the easy war that Moscow expected. When Western countries started really pouring in supplies to assist that, that has made it possible for the Ukrainians to do even more. Ukraine has an awful lot more people under arms right now than it did a month ago. They all need weapons. They all need body armor. Otherwise, they're standing there with handguns and Molotov cocktails and spades. And while that might make for good PR, it also gets a lot of people killed. So the Western supplies are making a very important difference as a force multiplier for Ukraine, but has slowed and possibly stalled the Russian advance. 
But the problem is that the Russians do have more people they can pour in. Ukraine, it's kind of got the people it's got. Uh, yes, there are foreigners signing up to fight. There are Ukrainian expats who are going home to fight, but these aren't large quantities of people, and it's not clear how useful most of them are going to be. So, Oli, we've talked about Western leaders, President Biden in particular, sort of being cautious to tread this line between supporting Ukraine, supporting Ukrainians, but not getting sucked in. But what about Russia? I mean, it might seem strange to describe restraint in Moscow, given the leveling of Mariupol. Um, but there seems to be still some caution guiding Moscow's policy towards NATO. No, no strikes, for example, on weapons depots in Ukraine's neighbors, notwithstanding that arms are being shipped across the border. So Russia believes in NATO, right? Russia believes in Article 5. If Russia didn't believe in Article 5, uh, I often say it would not be so neuralgic about the extremely unlikely possibility of Ukraine or Georgia joining NATO. Russia does not want a war with NATO. If there is a war with NATO, there is a risk of nuclear escalation. But if Russia finds itself in a war with NATO, I think, you know, what Vladimir Putin has said a few times is that if we go down, we're taking you down with us. And this is the, you know, this is the problem is that if it's NATO escalating, Russia will escalate more. One of the fears before the war, sort of especially given the track record over the last few years, was sort of massive cyber attacks. I mean, it could have been along the lines of the solar winds attack last year, it could be on energy, telecommunications. Do you think it's the same sort of rationale that's prevented that, that's meant that we haven't seen those operations so far, or at least not overtly? I'm not sure. There might be things going on we don't know about in the cyber realm. Uh, it might, you know, there might be attacks and efforts getting foiled that aren't getting shared uh, in part to avoid further escalation. Uh, there may be things Western states are doing uh, that we don't know about, and also independent hackers and Ukrainians. There have been a lot of denial-of-service attacks on Russian government websites since the war began, for example. There might be something deeper than that going on as well. So, you know, I think it's still a space worth watching. And so far, Olya, this has been a few weeks where the Kremlin has made some pretty grave miscalculations. Right? I mean, it's completely underestimated the amount of resistance in Ukraine it would run into. To some degree, it seems to have underestimated how determined the Western response would be, how united uh, the war would end up uh, making NATO. So, I mean, given this track record of miscalculation, is there a danger that, again, this sort of caution that the Kremlin is showing at the moment about avoiding a war with NATO, I mean, is that uh, vulnerable to the same sort of miscalculation that we've seen over the past few weeks? I find it a little bit difficult to think, uh, based on the evidence of everything they've seen so far, that NATO is not going is not going to be unified and is uh, you know is going to fall apart. I do think that Moscow continues to believe it can break Ukrainian will and pressure the West into um, supporting whatever settlement comes of that. Uh, a settlement that's beneficial to Russia. Um, I think there is always a risk of further miscalculation by Moscow um, and by the West. I think one of the the things we miss, right, when we congratulate ourselves in the West on our unity and the uh, strength of our response is we didn't just surprise the Russians, we surprised ourselves. And that's a problem because if there's the potential that if we had been able to communicate to the Russians what the response would look like, and the Russians had taken it on board, they might in fact have been deterred. So it was a missed opportunity for deterrence, right, if you actually threaten less than what you're willing to do. That's that's not good deterrence. Uh, so I think the challenge here is to do better. And kind of my take on that, and something we wrote in the, uh, the most recent crisis group statement on the war, is that if you can't be sure exactly what your response will be, communicating that can be helpful. That we can't always control just how strong our response will be. Emotions run high because people get angry. So factor that in, Moscow. Yes, we don't want escalation, but this goes on for too long. You cross too many gray lines and they turn into a red line even without us having been aware of it in advance. I know that our team in DC, and I mean, we've spoken about this before, we've been quite surprised now by some of the language in Congress, 
uh, the anger that people feel at uh, what Russia is doing, but also the sense that things are not going Putin's way. Maybe this is an opportunity to do more than try to get Russia out of Ukraine and some sort of settlement that Kiev can live with. And as you say, I mean, it's a chemical weapons incident, an attack on a, you know, a weapons depot too close to the Polish border, uh, something that ends up killing Western personnel. I mean, it's, it's easy to see some sort of trigger like this creating enormous pressure for the West to do more. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and I think it's important to make sure the Russians understand that. The domestic pressure in all of these countries just gets to be too high. I do think there's a danger on the Western side in um, kind of wishful planning and wishful policy that uh, there are people who blame, um, I think rightly, Vladimir Putin for this war, right, and are hopeful that the combination of sanctions and the difficulty that Russia is having militarily will lead to a change of government in Russia. You know, that's not impossible. It's just not particularly likely. And basing your policy choices on something that's not impossible but also not particularly likely would be a mistake. That's something that I really do think we need to be cautioning uh, Western leaders against buying into too much, that, you know, this war with Ukraine will be Putin's downfall and therefore the war needs to be uh, continued in the hope that it will bring down Russia. Um, there might even be people in Ukraine who are willing to do that. But I don't think that it's uh, the smart policy approach if what we want is security and stability in Europe. So to come back to end again on the nuclear question, Olya, I, I assume sort of the once a weapon is used in a confrontation between two nuclear armed powers, sort of leaving aside the breaking of the taboo and all that means for non-proliferation, incentives for others to go nuclear, but sort of leaving that aside, I assume it's quite difficult to sort of walk things back, that people come to their senses, exercise restraint before it turns into uh, some sort of global thermonuclear confrontation. So when... Uh when people who think a lot about nuclear weapons play games and run scenarios, it is what they usually find is that it is very, very difficult to control escalation. So for all these people in Russia, the United States and elsewhere writing their papers on how this is going to, you know, this amount of destruction is going to convince the adversary to back away for all the people spent a lot of time doing that and trying to calculate it. When people have tried to model it, for the most part, it gets bad doesn't always get bad. There are certainly always ways for people to come to their senses and back away from the worst. It's possible. And I guess the thing for me is it's less a question of how high the risk is. It's certainly higher. It's the question of how big the damage is. The formula is uh, risk times damage. And if the damage is high enough, even a smaller level of risk is way too much. So, Olya, maybe then to conclude and tell me if this is right, but as you've said, the biggest danger of a nuclear escalation lies in NATO getting directly involved in the war, potentially through, for example, a no-fly zone, which would involve, as we talked about, potentially taking down Russian planes, assuming that the Russians don't blink, which they seem unlikely to. Now, does that necessarily lead to nuclear war? No, but the risk would be unacceptably high, especially given the sort of almost unfathomable destruction that a nuclear confrontation would entail. Add to that, you also potentially have a risk that the Kremlin miscalculates again, misreads the mood in Western capitals. Now, Russia is unlikely to attack a NATO country, from what you've said, because it would be hard to misread right now NATO's commitment to defending a treaty ally. But Moscow might miscalculate in another way, do something that leads to enormous pressure in Western capitals for Western governments to get more involved. And, and so hence the importance of the sort of signalling, the sort of lines of communication that you talked about. I think the biggest risk is of direct NATO involvement. I think that poses just the greatest risk of Russia seeing an existential threat and responding accordingly. I think there are a host of other lesser risks, uh, which are more and less controllable. Uh, we're in a really dangerous moment in history. And uh, I mean, I think that's just the bottom line. And the ending of this war is therefore imperative, not just to save Ukrainian lives, 
but to get us out of this crisis. Olia, thanks again for coming on. Happy to join you again. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on the Ukraine war, its reverberations around the world, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson, Kabas Al-Musawi. And thanks to you, as ever, all our listeners. Please feel free to get in touch with any questions or comments. Leave a positive rating or review if you like the show. Tell your friends about us. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.